Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the Sagittarian Matters, Paleo Cookies, Advice and Artistic Success with Corin Tucker. Stay tuned. Hello listeners, I'm recording this intro from a house in Los Angeles where I just drove over the course of two days with producer Ponyo, but I am here to introduce my interview with Corin Tucker. You know Corin from Slater Kinney. You may know her from Heavens to Betsy or the Corin Tucker Band. Um, I went to her house, she fed me snacks, and she gave some really great advice to our listener. I want to say, in re-listening to this interview, sometimes I feel less like Terry Gross and more like Chris Farley's character that interviews people, where he's like, uh, remember when you were in that movie and it was really good? <laughs> yeah, me too, me too. Cool, cool. That's how I feel um, when I re-listen to this in some of our interviews, but I hope that you will like it just the same. I have one more caveat, which is I talk a little bit about my feminist roots as a teenager, and I want to say that Riot Girl things that I ingested never were man-hatey, but the men around me interpreted them as such because it wasn't about them. Okay, that's what I want to say. I hope you enjoy this week's interview, and goodbye. Tucker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thanks for the snacks. <laughs> You're welcome. There's a feast of snacks. <laughs> there's a feast. There's curried fake chicken salad. There's paleo cookies, hummus, tuna salad, kale salad, strawberries, tea, bread, cantaloupe, chips, crackers. <laughs> this is like the Thanksgiving of snacks. And I want to say these paleo cookies were delicious. Aren't they good? Yeah. Yeah. Do you eat these a lot? They're my favorite paleo cookie. They're really the only paleo cookie that I think I've tried that I've been like, oh, I would eat these. The texture is light. They're Jack, Jack's Paleo Kitchen chocolate chip cookie. But I had some that we sampled for the podcast, which is why I bring up, we did, my friend Morgan and I reviewed them for the podcast that were from a bag and they were maybe Portland Paleo or something. They were so dense. Yeah. It was like a health puck. Yes. Tasted like a health puck. I think if you're going to eat a cookie, it should taste like a cookie. This, I feel like, isn't mocking the name cookie. Right. Yeah. I feel like it's a reasonable sweet tooth substitute. Yeah. You know, I'd say maybe a few more chocolate chips, Jack. Yeah. <laughs> a few more. But we, you can add your own. Yeah. You have chocolate around, probably. Just, yeah. Just on yeah. top. Yeah. So we have an advice question. Hi. So here's my question. I'm 23. I'm a double cancer. I haven't got a fucking clue what I'm doing the majority of the time. And I was educated with a bunch of people who are like lawyers and bankers and advertising people now. And I don't want to do any of that stuff. I'm an artist who kind of just wants to be outside most of the time. But I feel like my weird secret envy of my peers like and of their conventional success is stopping me 
from throwing myself into the things that make me happy. What do you think? Mm. Mm. <clears throat> that's kind of just... I feel like that's par for the course of being an artist. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I don't know. I think it is too. I mean, I think that... I think that's that is one of the toughest things about being an artist is never having any real bread and butter, right? You yeah. just not a lot of times you don't know when you're going to make money, how like and how much it's going to be. Yeah. Because there's a lot of you know, a lot of questions as to when you know, yeah. when that's going to happen and how it's going to happen. Yeah. Um but then that's the payment for getting to do this thing that you love so much? I think so. I mean, I think that um, that's part of the question that you have to really wrestle with when you're young is how important is that to me? And will I regret it if I don't pursue that mm. while I have the chance? Right? Yeah. And I, you know, I'm in my forties now and I think that I definitely have some friends that have chosen, you know, more traditional careers that regret it really in their thirties and forties have been like, I hate what I do. Mm. And I have like a really good friend that had an, a very stable job and was just like, I'm so unhappy, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I, so I think that, um, there is that possibility that you might, you might regret not going for this artistic career and this, and this, you know, pathway that you think might satisfy you, you know? Yeah. So I think my advice is, is you really, if you feel that's who you are and that's your purpose and that's what you need to be doing that you, you absolutely should pursue it. But, you know, having said that, it's not, it's not the easiest path to follow. No. For sure. No. It's not an easy path. What do you think about the idea of art versus jobs as far as making a living? Like, I referenced this last week. So when I was, oh, Ian McKay came on the podcast, which was a thrill. But I met him when I was a teenager. And I remember at some point, I can't remember what my friends were asking about, but he said, you know, oh, it would be so, it sounds terrible to have to rely on your art to be the one thing that sustains you because that puts a lot of undue stress on your art. And at the time, as a teenager, I took it as a challenge. I was like, he's saying that because he doesn't think that we can succeed at art in a financial way. And I'm going to, I took it as a challenge, but now I don't see success as my art being financially successful, I see success as something different. And also I think it's, you know, it's great if your art can do that. And, but it would be, it does sound stressful to have my entire existence hinge upon whether or not people like the thing that I do next, because that seems like a lot of pressure to try and cater to people liking the thing I do next, instead of the freedom to make whatever I want mm -hmm. and have it succeed or fail without me turning homeless or something. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it's it can be very sensible to have some separation between making a living 
and being an artist, right? So you might, you might have to do something else to make a living. Yeah. Right. You might need to, I don't know, run a food cart, like deliver letters, right? Deliver the mail. I mean, you know, I met people who do these kinds of jobs and who are also artists. Yeah. Right. So they write books, write songs, um, write novels. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who are writers also have other jobs, right? They teach. Yeah. You know, and that, that's just, that's totally acceptable. And it doesn't mean that, um, you've in any way failed at being an artist. Yeah. I think that's really valuable to hear. And I try to be transparent with that about people as much as possible. Because for me, at a certain point, I just imagine if somebody did something that I thought was really good, like, say, like, Cedar Kitty made records, and I was like, this is so good. And then you just listen to it, and so you just imagine, like, this is so good. I hope this person is just getting just money for all time based on this good thing that they made that all my friends know about. So, of course, they must be taken care of. I, you know, you don't need to worry about it. But then meeting musicians as an adult who still have to have jobs and still need to work because there's not just like a magical check that's like, you did great and a lot of people know your name. Here's your check for that. I was like, oh my God, people have to keep working and keep producing and keep doing shows. And it, it was horrifying to find out. <laughs> but also I was like, oh, I need that transparency. Like even mm-hmm. the cartoonists I, who I think of as the best cartoon, like Dan Klaus or Chris Ware, still do illustration work. Mm-hmm. Not just for fun, not as a volunteer job. Yeah. But for money, Mm -hmm. because they have families and mortgages and whatever. Yeah. So being an artist doesn't just mean that you automatically just, yeah. Not at all. Yeah. I mean, you know, myself, even when Slater Kinney got back together in 2014 and made a new record, I kept my job. I still have my job. I work part-time doing web development. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not a bad thing to have another, another job that you do. Because having a creative life can be really crazy. It can be, you know, great in a lot of ways, but it can also be kind of stressful. Yeah. If that's all that you do and you don't have any other outlet that's kind of quiet. Yeah. Because you're you're kind of an introvert. I am. In real life. Yes. I'm coming out as an introvert. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) I, my sister called me out for being an introvert last year and I was like, what are you talking about? Because I do so much performance as part of my art and Mm -hmm. she was like well you're a showman but you're an introvert and it blew my mind because I didn't realize that you could be both have you um read that book quiet no but I own it and I was I had it in my giveaway pile I hope I didn't give it away (laughs) is that like introverts living in an extroverted world yes it's an excellent book one of my best friends bought it or gave it to me Mm -hmm. and was like this is you I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> you need a lot of alone time I as do an introvert. Yes, I do. Is that possible with kids? Um, no. No, it's not, really. But I feel like kids are different. Like, your children, like, especially when they're babies, like, they're... You're almost one person for a while, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So... Um. That makes sense. There's Yeah, there's kind of an exception there. And they sleep a lot, too, when they're little, so... Yeah, so you get that time. Yeah. I always think about that with people I know who are artists and introverts and have kids. I'm like... Because I, I read a comic, my friend's mom would wear a special hat that was the don't talk to me hat. <laughs> and so I imagine that I'm like, do you just wear a hat like a beekeeper's mask? And at a certain point, you're like, I just need a little alone time. I just need this space. 
Like, when mom's wearing the beekeeper costume, don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah. That's my only yeah. plan for the future for yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. I think that, um, it's funny. I think my son and I have similar personalities. Like, he's more, a little bit more introverted. And so, he and I have just always gotten along really well. My daughter is just much more extroverted and is super chatty. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm just like, why are there so many questions? <laughs> like, oh, questions make me feel weirdly infringed upon sometimes. <laughs> like when I was on, I was on the verge with my sister who, when she called me out, she's an extrovert. So she wants to be interacting all the time and finding out information all the time. And at a certain point I feel assaulted with questions <laughs> and I have to be like the floor is closed for questions. Yes. I do that with my daughter. Really? I, I there's no more talking. That's one thing that I also say a lot with my kids. There's, there's no more talking right now. <laughs> Like you can go mutter to yourself in a quarter, but this isn't happening. How do they do with that? They just, I mean, they have to accept it because, <laughs> you know. Do you use that? You're like, because I'm the mom. Because I said so. That's why. No, I try not to. Okay. Oh, one of my things that I'm using a lot lately is, we're, we're going to talk about that later. Oh, I like that. <laughs> parking lot? Put this in the parking lot right now. Yeah. My daughter actually says, we're going to put a pin in that. <laughs> it's like you have a corporation here. Yeah. You guys have a whiteboard behind the kitchen table. <laughs> okay, we're going to put a pin in that. We're going to come back. We're going to circle back to that. Yeah. But I want to loop you in on something else. Yes. You're like, sorry, the floor's closed. Yeah. I remember how dissatisfying it was for my mom to just be like, because I said so. Yeah. And I'd be like, God. That's a tough one. Said, Where do you even go with that? Yeah. You can't go anywhere with that. No. But I do think about that when I'm lecturing the dog for barking. <laughs> you just need to stop. And that's all. Yeah. Nobody asks you to do that. No more talking. No more. No more. <laughs> she doesn't understand English that yeah. well, but it feels satisfying to say. Yeah. Um, circling back to how hard it can be to be an artist, you toured a lot at a certain point, like all the time. How did you... I've been, I've been touring a little bit. How did you do it without it ruining your life? Like, how did you maintain your connections with people you loved and then or and or physically maintain and or mentally maintain yourself while constantly being in transit going to new places giving so much of yourself and then I don't know I mean I feel like there's been a lot of trial and error involved Mm -hmm. and over the years um I think that I mean, to be honest, your relationships definitely um, are affected, mm-hmm. right? Because you don't get to see people as much as you would like. But I think that you're you. After a certain point, you need to ask people, "Can you just accept me for who I am?" Right? Mm-hmm. Because this is part of who I am. I have to tour. I have to travel. It's part of what I do. Mm-hmm. And um, having a partner who also does that, that's something that was like part of the deal for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we knew that getting into it, right? And then... Because you met on the road, right? Um, we met in Olympia. Huh. Yeah. He was traveling, though. He lived, he lived in, in Athens, Georgia. Whoa. And so we didn't even live anywhere near each other. Um, and um, 
you know, both of us just were always traveling around for different jobs and, and shows and things that we did. Um, and that's true still to today. Um, so, you know, I think at a certain point you have to try and accept that about the person. Mm-hmm. It's really tough with having kids for sure. Yeah. That part's really, really, was really hard for me because I, you know, had to be the person at home a lot with the kids and, and having a partner that's away a lot during that was, was tough sometimes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I think that's, you know, for sure that's, that can be difficult, but I also think that, um, if you have your relationships that are really important to you, you, you have to, you need to work on them. You mm-hmm. need to maintain them over the years. Even if you are traveling, you know, even if you do have kids, right? Because those people are the people that you're going to need like through all of that. Yeah. To feel grounded. Yeah. To feel grounded and to feel like somebody gets you and cares about you and, you know, through all the ups and downs and having kids and the relationships and yeah. had the good money years and the bad money years and, you know, all of that. It's yeah. like, um, you, you're going to want friends that are going to be there through all of those different times, I think. Yeah. That, for me, is a thing, having friends that have toured understand, you know, you know, so you can call and be like, ugh. Because some friends are like, oh, that's so great for you. You got to go do this thing, and you're like, it is so great. And I'm not trying to complain, but like, you know. Yeah. But it was, you know, but it's ungrounding and totally weird. Taxing. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. I'm definitely um, one of those people that, like, I used to get sick all the time. That was my problem, Mm -hmm. being in a band and traveling so much and just being, like, having to be so out in the world and singing. Like I was just, uh, I was always like getting sick and it was a really bad thing. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up, I've gone to different doctors over the years, but I ended up like I've gone to different naturopaths and found that like, if I take really super good care of myself, I'm much better off and I'm, and I have a much easier time now traveling Mm -hmm. for the most part. What except is, when I go to Mexico. Except when you go to Mexico? What happens in Mexico? I get sick every time I go there. Like stomach sick? Yes. Oh my god. That's unfortunate. That is unfortunate. Yeah. I don't get that sick. That's which good. Which is nice. That's great. Knock on wood. Yeah. Knock on wood. Even in Mexico. but That's really good. <gasps> great. Oh. Yes? Yes. Um, sorry, I just checked the doodad. What was my touring question? Another thing for me is that I bring a lot of stuff so I can nest wherever I'm at. Like nut butter packets, I'll eat anywhere, and they save me as a vegan person. That's good. I always sleep a lot. And I take a nap every day. Oh, that's good. And that helps me a lot. Mm -hmm. Also, I bring my own French press with me. Ooh, yeah. So I don't feel upset about the coffee situation, and I don't have to stress about it. Yeah. Those are my things. Um, Have you tried an AeroPress? Everyone keeps telling me about AeroPress. Oh, yeah. And I haven't done it, but I keep thinking about it. I was very skeptical, and I stayed with a friend in Seattle. And he was like, I have this thing called an AeroPress. And I was like, that's not, I mean, that looks like a 
ridiculous piece of plastic. That's not going to be good. And yeah. he made me the best cup of coffee really? I ever had. Like, it, ever had. In Seattle. In your whole life. From this AeroPress. Yes. That's what people tell me. And I'm like, do I need another new so way to make coffee? Actually better. All right, I'll try it. <laughs> I'm taking this as a like a one-to-one um, recommendation. It's well, it's it's like inexpensive. Yeah, travels really well, right? So on the bus, like when you're on tour, yeah, you can wake up anywhere and make a good cup of coffee. Like that's I need that. that's really a good thing. Like hotel coffee, it's hard in the French press to get water hot enough to do the thing you needed to do in the French press. So I have to like run it through the hotel coffee machine several times. So it's hot. Anyway, this is a good tip. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, So I was not a riot girl as a teenager because I was embedded with a group of misogynists without really knowing it, punk boys Mm -hmm. who made fun of riot girl constantly. Hmm. So even at a point when I was listening to queer core music almost exclusively, reading out punk magazine. I found out about Bratmobile from watching the incredibly true story of two girls in love and had girl positive meetings at, in my home and I put out a zine where I called out a guy for basically raping a girl and used the first names of all my friends that supported him and lost all my friends. Even then, I was like, we're not riot girls. We do not hate men. Don't worry. <laughs> and now, but anyway, I say all that to say... But, you know, of course, then I moved to the Pacific Northwest, and I was like, oh, my God, what a fool I was. What an idiot I was. I can't believe it. And now I'm like, yeah, that's fine if men think I hate them. I think they're fine. Men can deal with themselves. They're fine either way. They don't need me to stay that I don't hate them. They're fine. Um, but I went to the Alien She exhibit, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, my God. And then hearing you talk about it and then reading Sarah Marcus's book, I was like, oh, my God. I was like, Corin did so much. I can't believe I mean, I already knew you did a lot, but you did more than I thought you did. And hearing you talk in the Alien She exhibit, this is a long way to get, long, I'm taking the longest route to get to this question. Uh, you were talking about how the media blackout was in part because people were taking these ideas from Riot Girl when they would put it in the media and just infantilize it and make it into this fashion thing and ignore the super radical politics that were actually going on. And that was, I don't know why, that just like hit me. You know, I went to see the exhibit last year, so I was... 34, 35 years old. It's many years after the fact, but it still hit me because it's still valuable because the idea of girls or young women having a political force still hasn't really happened in the media without it getting discounted in that exact same way Yeah, that I've seen. Yeah. I mean, maybe black feminists on Twitter, but they're mostly in their 20s and 30s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like... um, I do see signs of progress because I do see um, more younger feminist writers Mm -hmm. in positions of power in journalism than I think there was when I was a teenager. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, So I do, I I see signs of progress, but, um, you know, I still feel like, um, there's a long way to go in terms of, you know, women being in um, more positions of power within the media world, within um, the cultural world. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and it was such a difficult thing to go through 
um, it was it was it was very uh, tumultuous, you know, to become a part as a young person. I mean, I was like seventeen when I moved to Olympia, yeah, and um, you know, got involved with Riot Girl, being like, well, I'm I'm going to do that. That looks yeah amazing. That looks yeah. like you know this version of feminism that was um, in the vernacular that I spoke right yeah. in the language of a teenage girl. Yeah. Right. And so that to me was extremely important because it was, it was taking these important ideas and rewriting it in a way that, you know, kind, kind of came into everyday life for me and for my friends. Yeah. And, um, I thought that was a really smart thing that riot girl did, you know, but it was, um, it was very confrontational. Yeah. Right? In a lot of different ways. Um, and, um, you know, it, unfortunately, there were a lot of journalists that just um, wanted to argue about it and then wanted to trivialize it when they wrote about it. Yeah. You know? Everybody, so oh, there was a lot of people that wanted to take Riot Girl down, you know? Yeah. And there was some, you know, some really important, like, valid critique as well that I think um, was important. Um, you know, about how inclusive it was or was not, you know? Yeah. But um, I do feel like it, um, that you know, that the intense media scrutiny of it really you know, had the effect of silencing the, um, the important conversation that Riot Girl was having around sexual abuse and sexism and, and giving girls a way to voice those experiences and that, um, you know, that anger. Yeah. I feel like those zines that came out of that saved my life. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was already angry music that I was listening to. Mm-hmm. You know, but punk boy, angry music. I mean, whatever. I was listening to angry music, but then the actual zines of people saying, you know, it's a handwritten zine, so you're getting that feeling like somebody created it. You get to feel the person behind it. You don't need to guess at what their slant is because you know, because they're telling you. They're talking about mental illness or abuse or anything, and that's still, I mean, mean, maybe now that's more prevalent, but at the time it was huge Yeah. to see people talking about that, and they gave me a platform to talk about that, and suburban Kansas where punk boys had songs that the lyrics were like date rape date rape yeah 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 and everyone's dumb because their frontal lobes aren't even fully formed and they're just like yeah it's just music we're just listening to it Mm. but I I still feel like those principles they're still radical Mm -hmm. even though it's 2016 yeah and it's it's such a weird retro thing and people are like oh right girl like once there was this girl that didn't like me and she referred to me as the riot girl behind my back is like a diss like, I was dating her ex-girlfriend. She's like, oh, you're talking to the right girl. And that was, like, a diss to her. And I was like, well, that's fine. It's <laughs> fine with me. But, um, all right, so at Alien She, I got, like, the 1992 Riot Girl Manifesto. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And I had it on my fridge. And now when I drink coffee and look at it, I'm like, oh, my God, these things still apply. Yeah. Like, when I leave the bubble of Portland. Like, mm-hmm. when I, I went to live in Vermont for a year. And, like, affirmative action wasn't even really happening there. I mean, it was like I lived in a place where... It was a bunch of straight white men talking to straight white men about straight white men. And all of a sudden, I felt like a teenager again because all the conversations I was having to have 
were of that era, mm-hmm. that quality, yeah. of, or like of having to talk to straight girls and being like, hey, why don't you guys just talk nice to each other? Or like, why don't we not, like, you're actually not my enemy. Even if there's a guy around or whatever, like, I still have, like, I still would rather have you as a friend than have this guy's approval. So, like, how about you, we don't? But those kinds of things are still radical, and it yeah. blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I do feel like Portland is this kind of bubble, you know, or, you know, some West Coast cities and has have made this kind of progress that's really important, but a lot of America has not, you yeah. know? So um, I still feel like we have a long way to go. Me too. I think it took, for me, it took be, becoming a lesbian to really be able to enact feminism in a way where I wasn't care like I wasn't caring if it was threatening to men or not whereas before that I was always like trying to keep myself just a little bit a little bit smaller than I wanted to be because I didn't want to offend the men around me who might get butthurt about that or be like what about me wow what about me yeah for me it took straight up becoming gay and only hanging out with women to being like okay I can fully actualize myself now without dudes yeah around yeah I guess I, when I was, like, first doing Riot Girl, I had a boyfriend, but I also had, like, a shaved head and, like, oh, yeah. pretty much looked like a lesbian, so yeah. I just was, like, just, I just did not care, you know? I, I, there's, in, in, like, every aspect of my life, I was ready to just find out who I was, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, um, so... I just didn't care about offending anyone, I guess. Yeah. Which is a good way to do it when you're young. Go for it. That's my advice. Go, go for, for it. Go for it when you're young. Yeah. That's really And young. go for it when you're old, too. That's go for it when you're old. <laughs> you can change your life anytime. Yeah. When I when I had a boyfriend in high school, I had a shaved head. I looked like a boy, kind of. Me too. I was, like, trying to wear oversized shirts because I couldn't <laughs> believe I had boobs. I was like, are you kidding me? And I had oversized everything, and I had a shaved head. I basically looked like a boy, and I was like, why don't any guys want to date me? And then I had this boyfriend who was very similar to what a gay man might be like, even though he's not a gay person. Um, And, yeah, he was like, okay, okay, whatever. (laughs) And I was like, we're going to watch The Incredibly True Story of Two Girls in Love again, again, again. I was like, we're going to watch these lesbian movies over and over again. And he was like, okay. (laughs) And that was my boyfriend. Nice. That was the only friend I had left after all my friends dumped me for calling them out in my zine oh, wow. for being sexist. Wow. Yeah. The trickle down in Kansas. Yeah. And now it's 2016 and we're here in Portland. Here we are. We get to live in a nice place. Yeah. A feminist hamster nearby. <laughs> <laughs> Eating some fresh broccoli. Yes. Dog producers in the backyard. Dog producers. It's um, a world. I know. So, has your... I have two more questions for you. Okay. Number one. Has your definition of success changed now versus when you started your career as an artist or your life as an artist? Hmm. Can you think about what success meant to you then? I think that it's maybe evolved a little bit. I don't, I feel like, um, I don't think it's, it's really that much different because I, I admired artists that I feel like were accomplished and not necessarily hugely commercially successful, mm-hmm. um, but that had enough commercial success to make a living, mm-hmm. you know, or or either that or had 
music that was so profoundly influential that I feel like that also is a hu- is a huge success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still feel like those are are things that I admire today, you know, in terms of people that I look up to. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I understand now is how fleeting success is, mm-hmm. right? So even, um, I think success and accomplishment are two different things, right? Mm. Um, so even the most successful musician that's made a bunch of money or sold a bunch of records or, you know, had kind of like what the dream is for success, I, some of those people are my friends and I see them. I mean, it's a really hot moment when you, when you make something that people really love. Right. Yeah. But then you see the other side of that when you're done with that, mm-hmm. when it's, when that, you know, album cycle is over or whatever. And, you know, um, it's always really hard. Yeah. Right. To feel that you like you've, you've done that. Everybody's listened to that record and then yeah. people are like, now what? That's always hard no matter yeah. who you are. No matter if you're Bruce Springsteen or if you're, um, you know, Band X from yeah. Tiny Town. Yeah. Right? So I think that um, what is super important to have is your work ethic and your discipline. Mm-hmm. Right? People, people never talk about that as artists because it's super boring. Yeah. And it's just, it just seems really unsexy. Yeah. But... That is, it's a crucial part if you want to have a lifelong, you know, commitment to art or, or career as an artist, yeah. right? Is, is being able to go through all of that, those negative feelings of like, oh, we have to write this whole big thing again. We have to go through all of this strife to write a new record or where, whatever it is, you know, yeah. a crummy show. I mean, just, you know, it, it can happen to anyone. You know, we've had crummy shows as, oh yeah, the crummiest. We had like one of our worst shows. We played a festival, which I will not name just to be judicial about it, but we played like a big festival and we were on at night, which we were excited about. Well, there were a lot of other bands before us who had one incident or another or another and pushed, kept pushing back their time slot, kept pushing back their time slot it started raining. The wind was like blowing and blowing and blowing. And, um, (laughs) by the time we get on stage, it's like midnight. It's freezing. It's completely dark. We can't even put up any of our backdrop or our like stage show because of the wind. Oh no. And there are like 20 people watching us at a huge festival because it was just like cold and yucky and people were like, I'm out Oh of my here. God, really? Yes. Yes. Was it like bald guys and decrepit riot girls that were there? No, it was 20 people like huddled under their ponchos, freezing, being like, Oh my God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this was last year. Oh my God. And that seems inconceivable. It sucked. Wow. Big time. Um, and we had, you know what? We went through every single emotion that every band ever does. Yeah. You know, we were like, uh, is this it? Like, are we, are we done? Like, 
uh, do people hate us? Like, should we never have gotten back together? Like, uh, you know, are we washed up? Like everything that every band ever has, you know, has ever gone through. We all went through the next morning was the worst. Like just waking up, like so humiliated, like having to start on this whole other leg of our tour, just like completely just humiliated. Oh my God. And then we just, you know what? We just went on. We went on to the next thing. We went on to another festival show that was incredible. Mm-hmm. So we went from that horrible festival, which will shall, shall not be named, yeah. to Spain. And we're playing on the edge of the ocean. And Patti Smith did horses right before us on oh. the same stage. And we're like <laughs> backstage with her, like crying while she like performs. And we could hear yeah. her warming up with Lenny Kay backstage, like right next to us. Oh my God. You know? Yeah. So uh, none of that is any different when you're successful or not successful. Like that is all the roller coaster that is life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But I think you have to have the discipline to go up and be like, every single show we play is going to be the best possible show we can do at that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Every you know recording that we do, hopefully, is going to be the best best we can possibly do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And that to me is focusing on accomplishment rather than. Um, you know, always just worrying about being successful or commercially successful or trendy or any of that. You know, I just think that's, it's not going to serve you as well as thinking about what do you want to accomplish as an artist? Yeah. I think that's huge. I end up talking a lot about hard work on the podcast when I talk to cartoonists Mm -hmm. because it's so hard and like boring it's like gets really boring and isolating and just fucking hard and laborious and mm-hmm. but that's but that's the thing right and I do get like I feel like I'm a cheesy high school guidance counselor because I was telling someone I feel unemployed I felt unemployed for a long time my friends are like you have a million jobs I was like yeah but I feel unemployed because do the work you love and it'll never feel like work but I do I feel like I get to wake up when I want to I get I mean truly I go to bed at two in the morning because I work till one in the morning but I, when I wake up at 10, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm unemployed. And I'm like, I just get to go draw all day. And That's even though I'm like, this is fucking boring. And then my internal stage mom is like, but you're going to do it anyway. We're still doing it. I still feel like I'm getting away with something. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. Like, I'm like, when do I go to McDonald's <laughs> for my jet for clock in? I yeah. don't know. I think that that's, I mean, having that feeling of like, it could all go away tomorrow is, it's, it can be useful. You know, it can be super useful because it'll kick your butt into doing something well, you yeah. know, like doing your absolute best because you're afraid that, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just, I think coming from that DIY spirit, I, am, I, I mean, I, I want people to like my books, of course. Yeah. And I want to be able to keep making books on the level I'm making them. But if people hated the things I did or people didn't want to publish them or give me money for them, I would just still make them. Yeah. That's, I think that's the thing with being an artist mm-hmm. is whether or not my living is coming from that. I'm still going to do it anyway because I couldn't stop if you tried to make me stop. Right. Like I asked people this question before. Like if somebody gave you – was like you can have a check for as much money as you possibly want, $500 billion. But as soon as you sign it, you could never make art again. Oh. You could never write another song. 
You could never play another song, any or you know, like I could never draw a picture. I just couldn't do it. No way. I would go crazy. No way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's 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 deeply important to me to to do music. Yeah. Like, I would. I don't know if I could make it <laughs> if yeah. I couldn't do it. Well, I saw you at the weirdest show. I just remembered. Remember, like you guys played the Corn Tucker Band played at the comedy festival. At oh. But it was after D delocated. Is that the uh-huh. show? But you were yeah, John Glazer's show. You were wearing a ski mask. Yes, and you were singing to a microphone that had a voice changer on it. <laughs> yeah. So because he has his show is about like being in the witness protection program. Yes. So in the whole show, he's wearing a mask and his voice is different. Yeah. And I was like, I feel like I'm the only person. I mean, like my friends and I that had been to the comedy festival saw it, but everybody it just seemed like so bizarre. The whole scene, because it was like comedy fans, but a lot of people. Yes. But you guys, but then you singing into this thing with the mask on. That is the thing about being a musician, is that you don't realize this when you become a musician, but um, comedy people are your cousins. They're your weird, like, brothers from another mother. Yeah. And um, as a total introvert, it's terrifying to me, because... um, they ask you to do things like wear a weird like mask on stage and yeah. sing into like a microphone or yeah. be on their TV show or whatever yeah. it is, you know. But um, we are like weird performance brothers and sisters. Yeah. I find I see that. Yeah, I feel links to the comedy community, and I can't tell what. It's what it is. But yeah. also sometimes when I tell people I do comics, they're like, "Oh, you're a comic?" No, <laughs> not officially. Just as free, freelance comic for yeah. my friends. Yeah. Was there a moment, this was my other question that I just remembered that I had written in the margins. Was there a moment that you can think of that changed your course completely into the course you're at now? Like I can think back to a time when I was a teenager and I had been into grunge and then I, my stepdad, who I was forced to hang out with so we could have bonding time, we were having a forced bonding day, my pal Al, where we went. He drove me around. He drove me to the city, and I made him take me to a record store because I was trying to, like, manipulate our time together to do something I wanted to do. I remember buying a demo tape for a local ska band in Kansas City, ska punk band, that changed my life because knowing them hooked me up to the zine community, and I feel like everything I have now I can link back to that moment Mm -hmm. of getting involved in the Kansas City music and zine community mm-hmm. is there some kind of turning point moment like that that you can remember there's several but I think that um, <laughs> there's there's several I think that the moment for me that like changed my life complete, like like really like I like turned a corner was when I I was in Olympia. I was in college, like my first year. I was, I was like in Riot Girl. I was like filming, making a movie about it, and I wanted to be in it. You know, I was super uncool. Like I, I think I described my hair situation <laughs> pretty cool. Um, and, but I was, you know, just hanging out with like um, the Bikini Kill girls, Allison and Molly from Bratmobile, and I was just like, yeah, I have a band too. You know, just like I was just. I would just say that I, we, we hadn't done anything yeah. at all. Yeah. And, um, I went home after the first year of college to Eugene and my friend, Michelle Noel 
called me and said, hey, we're having a girl night at the International Pop Underground Convention. Do you want to play your band? That's like my band. Your band you've been telling people it exists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in three weeks. And I was like, okay. (laughs) That, saying okay to that, saying yes, changed my life. Because I suddenly was like, I have to write a bunch of songs. Like, we have to perform, you know, and we had to actually do it. Had you ever written songs before then? No. Actually, yes, I'd, I had kind of played around when I was in high school. Yeah. But, like, this was, this was like, really, like, we had to perform. Yeah. You know? So we wrote a bunch of songs and drove up and performed at Girl Night in the, at the IPU. And it yeah. was, like, super terrifying, but, changed, like, completely changed my life. Yeah. All of Fugazi was there. In the Which audience. sounds crazy for your first show <laughs> as a seventeen-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> I was just like, Ugh. like all of the people that I looked up to, and they were all like, like that was great, super supportive, you know. Yeah. And then I was like, I'm, I am a musician, you know. I could say that about myself. Yeah. Because of that one performance. Yeah. You know? But it was just because you said yes, mm-hmm. and you told yourself that that's what you're doing now. Yes. I kind of like to tell people like, there's not a moment where someone else comes up to you and is like. You're an artist. Not at all. You're a writer. Never. You just have to tell people, like, I am a writer. I'm an artist. I'm a writer. And then they'll come to you. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And then you made it so. Yeah. And did it bolster you into doing more because everyone around you was so supportive? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was super fortunate because I was in, like, this incredibly supportive community that was like, that was awesome do you want to put out a record? I mean, I, I couldn't have been more supported. I couldn't have been luckier really yeah. to have people, um, around me, you know, give me those opportunities. But for anyone out there, you know, you have to give yourself permission first. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, being in Portland, having that kind of spirit of supportive people was really helpful to me as someone whose art didn't look like anyone else's art, to keep making it, even though. Yeah. Even though it didn't. But yeah, giving yourself permission first. Yeah. Do you have any last advice for young artists, young women, young anything? I think that... Um, I think making... Um, you know, plans for yourself are a really useful thing. And making making goals for yourself can be really helpful. You mm-hmm. know, like whether or not you want to make an album or make a book or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, but just don't be afraid to um, let those plans evolve as you get older. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I think that's good. That's good. <laughs> I think by painting myself into a corner, I've always done, that's how I've ever gotten things done, mm-hmm. is by taking on a little bit more uh-huh. than I should have. Yeah. But the ability at a certain point to let go and be like, okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. Why don't I just see what's next? Yeah. It's really helpful. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thanks for the snacks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And we've had a lot of locations. We've covered <laughs> a lot of territory. Yeah. You know what I just realized at the last minute is, I think that when I, like, went into this lesbian cloister, I feel like that was, like, going on a retreat. 
mm-hmm. to find my fully actualized feminist self. Mm-hmm. So then I could come out and my relationships with men could actually be more healed. Yeah. Because I could be my full self. Yeah. And let them be them full selves without yeah. influencing each other in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. That totally makes sense. And now I'm here. And now we're here. Yeah. I'm here. I'm queer. Get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks for having me come over to your house. Yeah. We absolutely. didn't even talk about the police car. <laughs> <laughs> Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton, with assistance by Panyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.